0: If you're gonna put your heart and soul into something, you better make it something you're proud of and you're willing to stand behind. Know who you are or what you believe in and be prepared to stand up for it. I feel like a product too. You gotta make stuff that you stand behind. You're proud to give away. Hey everybody, we have a special
1: bonus episode for you today. We're having a conversation with Bayard Winthrop. He's the founder and CEO of American Giant, one of our favorite clothing companies. Yeah,
2: this episode is all about the intersection of design and entrepreneurship. That's a topic both Aaron and I have really been interested in over the years. And as we've taken the show independent this year, it's something that's definitely closer to our day-to-day lives. So we love hearing from somebody who's both very knowledgeable about the design side of things, even though he's not a designer himself, but knows you know how it plays into the business factors of any kind of enterprise, and someone who's been a, a multiple-time entrepreneur as well.
1: Designers often hear that they need to develop business acumen. They need to know how a business works and how a product makes money. And Bayard shares some of those insights here in our conversation.
2: Yeah, this episode is different in one other way. It's our very first sponsored episode. So American Giant is one of our sponsors. We mentioned that we do love the clothes and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end, but this is something new for us. So we're curious to hear
1: what you think. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Bayard as much as we did. Now,
0: on to the show.
2: Bayard Winthrop, welcome to the Design Better podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
2: Uh, so good to have you. And before we dive into the show proper, we, we thought it would just be helpful to orient people a little around your career. You've been at some really, really cool companies. I mean, the only other person I know that's been at such fun companies is a guy named Joe Nornchild, who is the co founder of. Uh, Billabong and Hurley, and I've become friends with him over the years. I mean, I'm a surfer, so like I've always looked up to him and his kind of entrepreneurial adventures. But you've, prior to your current role at American Giant, you were at Chrome and Freeboard and Atlas Snowshoes, where I actually interviewed there for a product design role back in the late '90s after college. So I'm familiar with that company. Wow, oh, that's um, awesome! Yeah, <laughs> but such fun places to work. So maybe you could walk us a little bit through your journey and what brought you to where you are today.
0: I'd love to. I, I'm now in my 50s, and I reflect on my career path a lot, and just filled with lots and lots of gratitude with the opportunities that I have had. Yeah, you know, I started out. I grew up in Connecticut, and I uh, my folks got divorced. I was youngest. I was youngest of three boys, and my dad paid for our education, and so I ended up going to kind of gold plated schools in New England and prep school in New England. But my mom was not the most sort of financially stable person in the world, and so. I don't think I knew this at the time, but, but as a kid, I think I got pretty oriented and fixated on wanting to be financially stable. And growing up in the southern part of Connecticut, a lot of the fathers around me worked on Wall Street and worked in banking. And so I, even though I wasn't a good student, I got really fixated on getting into the world of investment banking. And, and uh, I went to the University of Vermont. I was a history major. And, like knew nothing about finance or economics or accounting. I started interning. I got through a, a friend of mine's father who kind of was almost a second father to me. I got a job. As an intern one summer at a well-regarded bank, and and I, that started a series of summers where I worked there, and they eventually allowed me to get into their investment banking program, which was you know a pretty elite program. And and I got there, I was like the guy from UVM, and everyone else was from Wharton and Stanford and Harvard, and had been economic majors. And I was clearly not smart enough, way over my head. And a couple of years later, I just uh, I was lucky enough to be working on a project with the film company called IMAX. We were raising debt for them. And I was a junior person, kind of the bag carrier on the team. But I was going back and forth to Toronto a bunch and met them and met the founders and got to hear their story. And and I remember just sitting in a meeting being like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing and inspiring. And and on the way back to the airport, the rest of the guys I was working with were kind of talking about how oh, these guys don't understand capital markets and they don't understand debt. I was thinking to myself like I was having literally the opposite reaction. Like those guys get it entirely. Like, what's going on? And so, uh, anyway, I gave my notice and I left, and I left New York. I couldn't wait to get away from the East Coast back then, and was heading to Seattle and uh, was going to just do something different. And really, I had this vague notion I wanted to get involved in a consumer products business and, and making something. I wanted to make something physically, and diverted to San Francisco. A buddy of mine needed a roommate, and I diverted to San Francisco. And through a, a random series of connections, I kind of was asking anybody that I got here, like, who do you know that's making products to something interesting? And through a friend of a friend, I met Jim Klingbeel, who was the founding partner along with one other guy about the snowshoe. The other founder was Perry Claibon, who had gone through the Stanford product design program and had designed the snowshoe as, as his master's thesis, coming out of that and, and launched the business out of that. And I, met those guys and saw that business. I think they had one or two employees at the time and I spent, you know, it felt like six months, maybe it was more like six weeks, but I would show up every other day and go go walk in their door and say, guys, I'll do whatever you need doing. I just want to, I want to be a part of the company. Eventually I think it wore them down enough that they allowed me to come in. And that was just, you know, it was one of those, is one of those moments was then that I'm just enormously grateful for. I mean, I, I went from taking all these things I'd learned in banking theoretically and was applying in practice in Atlas and for the first time really understanding a lot of the concepts that I was being taught in banking. And I loved it and I was halfway good at it and I got to be a part of a lot of things that were going on there for you know, the first three years of its really rapid growth. And I got some of the credit for the success there and that opened up more opportunities. And so I, I did have an early phase of my career, the opportunity to work at some great brands. and. You know, Chrome is another one of those, Freeboard is another one, Freeboard came out of the Stanford Design program as well. But I think that I've been lucky enough to be associated with brands that were really authentic and that believed in building great products and, and believed in doing it with integrity. And and I think that really got baked into my being. But those experiences, all of them very different, were all remarkable in, in their own way. And I feel very grateful to have kind of stumbled into that opportunity because I think without it, I don't you know. I, don't know. I, no, I never imagined in, in the context I grew up in, it was like you're either a lawyer or a doctor or a banker. It was like the set of things I considered. And it was like this whole world opened up to me with, with Atlas that, Snowshoe that really kind of changed my whole paradigm.
1: I think it's interesting, those models that you had growing up of like, these are the types of careers I could have. They're all very kind of ethereal, abstract, difficult to describe. And what you wanted was something physical and tangible. It's like the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you have a sense for like what it is about your personality that brought you to making? And then on top of that, making in a certain way, because there are lots of consumer products out there and they're not really all made the same way.
0: It's a great question. I mean, I think about that a lot as it relates to school now and what I perceive as the failing of of schooling, particularly for younger people, about, you know, is things like Shop and things like that begin to decline in their presence in schools. That I think it's so important for young people. Like you know, countries like Germany do this quite well, where they expose kids early to a wide range of careers and open up that at least the aperture that says mm, I could go do that, or I could go into banking, or I could go into teaching, or whatever it might be. I did not; it was not part of my my early educational experience, and I think that's a real shame. And to me, the, the second part of your question, and obviously I, maybe I'm biased about this, but I think everybody has this innate desire to make, and I think it might be, I want to you know learn how to make a really great loaf of bread, or I want to know how to fix my car or to change the oil in my car or to change my tire or plant a great garden or build a shed. I think that's an innately human need. and. I think we've we're increasingly living in a time where there's less and less of that happening. And I, I think it's a cultural problem actually. I think that losing that connection. I think you see it in all this artisanal craft movement stuff is to me is a explosion of that idea. Like this this need that, yeah, maybe I can, you know, go work at Yelp every day and grind it out and put it in a 60 hour week, but on the weekends I'm gonna I'm gonna make an amazing croissant or I'm gonna build a hell of a garden. I I think that's a thing. And and then maybe to the third piece about why high quality I don't know. I mean, I just sort of feel like for all of us, you know, why make a shitty croissant? You know, I mean, if you're going to put your heart and soul into something, you better make it something you're proud of and you're willing to stand behind. You know, I feel like it's a company set of values. It's like, well, you better believe it, and you better when the when the weather gets bad, you better be steady at what you believe in and not blow whichever way the winds blowing, But know who you are and what you believe in, and be prepared to stand up for it. It's like I feel like a product too. I mean. You got to make stuff that you stand behind. You're proud to give away, you know? And it's, you know, it's like serving a meal. It's like if I had you guys over for dinner and made you made you a meal, it's like it's an intimate experience. And, you know, to this day, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, I own one of your sweatshirts, man, and I, I love it, it's the most amazing experience. And if they had a shitty experience with the company, it's terrible. It's like, take it personally. It's like, oh, let me fix that for you, you know? It's like it's part of who you are. And so I, that one, I think, is. I think anyone that is really involved in making product, I hope, is, feels takes it that personally.
2: Yeah. The idea of quality, and maybe this could lead into your discussion about the origin for American Giant, but there's this idea of quality of the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Have you read that mm-hmm. book before? And, yeah, sure. you know, It was published, I believe in the 70s, is that right, Aaron? And mm-hmm. and it's was yeah. just around the time when so much manufacturing was starting to be offshored. Mm-hmm. And Aaron and I were talking about this before the interview, and there's a quote saying, Caring about what you are doing is considered either unimportant or taken for granted, and that idea of quality, and caring about what you're doing, maybe you could talk a little bit about that as it regards, you know, why you started American Giant.
0: Well, let me just go on a quick tangent before that. That I think is that just stimulated some thought for me too. I think you know one of the things that in the textile world, particularly, you know, for your listeners that don't know much about us, we you know, we make all of our stuff entirely in the United States from the cotton. So you know, there's a all the way through. You know, not every all of our stuff is just cotton, so we have other materials there. But all the way through the supply chain, and that's a remarkable thing. There's like all these incredible steps, and like so much of American industry, a lot of that is turned into what we refer to in the textile industry as kind of ton and gun manufacturing. It's like high speed, almost turning humans into robots. And I think you know one of the things that we with our line have done is because we exist in more of the premium end of the apparel market, there is this remarkable thing when you can go into facilities and actually stop and talk and listen and empower people that are actually on the floor to weigh in on decision-making. And there's an element there about, at least with with our supply chain, about having a new conversation about what it's like to make an American-owned sweatshirt, let's say. Where there's a bit more pride and ownership and participation, in what's going on there? And you know, just anecdotally, we in that program we nap our product in a place called Carolina Cottonworks in Gaffney, South Carolina,
1: not far from me. Oh, is that right? Really? <laughs> I'm in Athens, Georgia. I'm not too far. Oh, uh, right. yeah. I didn't
0: realize that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And Gaffney is a you know is a town in northwestern South Carolina. The napping there was it was a tricky part of it, and the guy that runs the napping in Carolina Cottonworks fixed that for us and unlocked a critical piece in the development of the company. And he's now a part of our narrative, you know, we see him every time we go down there and without him, we wouldn't be here. That humanity, that piece of that puzzle is a big deal. when We think about our own kind of domestic manufacturing capability and our you know, our, our desire to get better and better and better when we're doing it. The, the human piece of that, and the pride in that I hope is that's a piece that's missing a lot of the domestic conversations that you know, as we move into quality, we, we have a saying in the company, make better things, make things better. And that essentially means that when you have quality that you take pride in and, and you share that pride and that quality with the people that are making it, goodness flows. People think they've got important stuff to do and they're working you know, in a place that is dignified and, and respects their effort. And that's a big part of what you know, I think has made it successful is, is maybe rethinking a little bit what textiles domestically can look like. And so, sorry, I just diverted on that. But that's it. That it made, you're, you're talking about that made me think about that, about it is so important to not take that for granted, to make sure that people understand how this remarkable performance that happens to produce a sweatshirt is honored and celebrated. And it's a big part of our narrative. You know, from the very beginning, we've always talked about our supply chain because we think it's so critical, we wouldn't be here without them. So critically important, you know? One of
1: the afflictions of being a designer is that you you can't help it, but you just pay attention to everything. So if you check into a hotel and the faucet is not right, it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe some knuckleheads did this. (laughs) or like there's no light switch next to the bed or like it's an affliction so design inherent in design is a quest for quality and you arrive at it through cultivating your attention and what you're describing here is paying attention paying attention to all the pieces all the steps who's involved what's our relationship so we can continue to work further what are our materials like where are we going to make this what do we stand for and what's the story behind this thing? And what's the relationship that we want to have with customers? And I think that all designers who listen to this show, regardless of if they're digital designers or they're creating physical goods, films, whatever, this is who we are. This is what we're about, is about paying attention. So, not so much a question, more as like,
0: how do you feel about that statement? Yeah, well, I'll just, you know, there's maybe a, a file piece, which is, being able to operate and design in an environment that gives you the freedom to ask those questions and press on them and to achieve the outcome that you think is right and good. And when we launched the company, we launched it with a full zip sweatshirt, men's only full zip sweatshirt. And that was designed by a product design guy, an engineer. had no had no, no clothing experience at all. It was very intentional. It was in part to open up that conversation completely and to say, if you were going to make something in an unconstrained way and you need to make it great, how would you do it? And I wanted there to be no preconceived restrictions or blocks to anything. I wanted him to go and enter that into purely through the lens of how do I make this thing the best possible thing it could be. I got a lot of shit for that in the early days, but I think it really paid off. It changed the way the company designs product, by the way. That initial him, his design, his leadership there really changed us forever. But it's interesting to hear you think about it because when I reflect back on his process there, it really was that way. Just this meticulous, relentless drive for perfect, which is a cool thing to be, you know, a part of and to watch happen and come together in the end.
2: Yeah, maybe tell us a little more about it's Philippe, right? Philippe Manu. Yeah. And
0: his background and how that relationship came to be. Yeah. So I, I met Fleet. So you, you know, like all, like, all these like small companies, you realize there's an incredible network that all know each other. And going back to Atlas Snowshoe, that program, that company merged out of the Stanford product design program. And when we were there, when I was at Alice, we were looking into, into making child carriers of all things. We felt that the child carry market was not in great shape and there was an opportunity there. That was my senior project, actually. <laughs> is that
2: right, program. Yeah, I, I did a child carrier. It was it was sort of a silly idea because I didn't have kids. I had no idea, and I was like, "What if you?" And I did a lot of backpacking back then. I was like, "What if you had a child carrier that like integrated into a backpack?" Nothing like most parents aren't backpacking with like their infant, <laughs> but I
0: made a product, and yeah, yeah. But there's a there are some really interesting insights there, and so I am older than you, but this is back in the I guess the mid '90s. And child carriers back then were terrible. I mean, the the lombar sport was terrible. There was no, you couldn't have any place to put like a sippy cup or anything. It was like, they were terrible. And Atlas, to the enduring credit of Jim and Perry, had built a brand that was just sturdy and well-made stuff made here. And that felt like that fit really well with the child carrier market. But anyway, we went back to the Stanford program and the guy we ended up working with there was a guy named Steen Strand who was in the program and Steen and I spent, I don't know, Three trade shows together and a couple of nights in crappy motels and looked at child carers together. We never ended up doing it. But years later, he launched Freeboard and, and I joined him at that. But as part of that network of people, Philippe Manu was at Stanford also and was in the product design program. Philippe was a, grew up as a big skateboarder and was around Freeboard a bunch, and remarkably talented guy, incredible designer. He had been spending a lot of time in his career. He'd been in medical devices and was at Apple working on the original iPod. And I caught him at a time where I think he was wanting to do something that was different for him. He just was ready for a change. We got a coffee together one day. I said, how about this? How about you design this sweatshirt for me? I think his reactions were twofold. One was like, I have no idea how to make a sweatshirt. But also, like, that's interesting. Like, I have no idea how to do that. I think the only instruction or agreement between he and I was like, do this right. Don't be ashamed by anything. He really went through this almost reverse engineering approach to say, what are all the things that go into making a sweatshirt? And what make those good or bad things? And what do you care about? And he is so methodical and meticulous and just would turn it and turn it and turn it. I mean, we had discussions about the ribbing and the cuff and the dimensions of the cuff and the length of it for weeks on end. And Testing and tearing apart and cutting and buying went back into goodwill stores and buying more fleece and but the end of it was you know we had literally together gone on a journey that lasted for you know almost a year of figuring out all of these component parts and it was it ended up being this just this complete passion project just totally immersive and we came out the other end with a sweatshirt that we were really proud of <laughs> like you know, nobody would make they're like are you kidding me like this thing is yeah, this is not commercial. This thing is like got way too much build in it, and all these elements that you know no one cares about anymore. And but Philippe was like, "Hell yeah, they do." And and he had brought me on that journey too. And just you know, sort of feeling like, man, once you get into it, it becomes its own thing. And you're like, God, this is a beautiful thing. And almost to a point where we felt like, I don't care if one person buys this or a certain million, but we're gonna make this damn thing. It was just beautiful and awesome. And so we did. And we, you know, there's a whole supply chain part of the story too about people in the supply chain. One person in particular that stood up and said, I'm going to help you get this done. That without him, we would never have been able to get into production on it. But there was this amazing confluence of talent and people that ultimately got it made. But there was a while there where we thought we'd hit a dead end with our ability to actually get the thing manufactured.
1: So take us through this a little bit more. So is this sweatshirt the origin story of American Giant, where it's like the first thing where you
0: couldn't get someone else to produce it, so you had to start your own company. No, so a little different than that. So I, I had been running a company in San Francisco called Chrome that was a, originally a messenger bag business, and and I was brought on to add on footwear and apparel or expand their apparel offering. And it was started by a couple of guys, Bart and Mark, who built an absolutely beautiful initial product and a series of extensions around it. And you know those those guys were total product guys and committed and loved that brand and did an amazing job there. And And they sold the company to a new owner who wanted to expand it. And I was brought in to help do that. And we had a few great years together. And and as we were growing, I think I began to really get conviction that he had good ambitions for that business and big ambitions for that business. And I felt strongly that in order to achieve that vision, that Chrome really had to root itself in quality and had to root itself, in in my assessment, in their American-made heritage. And that from that foundation, they could grow a very big business. And I presented that to him, the owner, and, and the board that I felt that we had to really redouble this commitment as we were pushing into footwear and apparel. And I remember at the board meeting, he was like, yeah, no. That's a nice idea, but we're not doing that. <laughs> we're, we're going to China and we're going to we're gonna expand into REI and Sport and all these other networks. And that's a very reasonable decision to make, by the way, right? I mean, staying domestic back then and now is it's not easy. There are a lot easier paths to choose. But I had spent a lot of time thinking about it. I really believed it. I was really... Committed to that idea, I was really kind of all in, and and I think he realized at the same time that that this is this isn't my guy. You know, he's he's doing something different. He fired me a month and a half later. I'm just like you know the guy. I remember I'd i uh, i come home to my wife, and I really believe it was maybe the best three year stretch up to that point of my professional career. We'd been doing amazing work. The team at Chrome was unbelievable, and and I came home to my wife. and I said, I think, I think I'm getting fired tomorrow. <laughs> she goes, no way. And I was like, I think I am. And uh, the next morning, he fired me at like 5.30 in the morning. But at that point, I had just had my doll, my first child. She was like three weeks old, and it was just before Christmas. And I'll never forget this. I had on the one end this sort of intense sense of like, I got to go do that, but also like panic. I had an infant on my hands. I'd just gotten fired. It was like Christmas time. I was like, oh my God. And so that was a that was a stressful period. And I was sort of scrambling, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And But in the midst of that, there was this emerging idea like, boy, I mean it about that American-made thing, and you know, as I had thought about it through the lens of Chrome initially, it was particularly acute in apparel in my mind that I had grown up in in the '70s and '80s around the kind of great American brands—the the Russells, the Champions, the Levi's, the Wranglers, the Woolriches—all these brands that had made Red Wing, that made just amazing products that were maybe a bit more expensive, but that lasted and that took on a patina over time, and that you know, you really almost felt like you built a relationship with the product and the brand. And that by wearing that brand, it said something about who you were. And I just, I loved that stuff. And I looked around the apparel world then and now, and I just think it's filled with such junk and brands that with very few exceptions have no soul and have no, no North Star and don't really have a set of values that they you know adhere to. And I believe then, that, way more today, but I believe then that there was a real opportunity there. And that if you built some great product and did it with integrity, you did it in the US, that people care. You know, to add to that, I also felt that to our earlier conversation that we had been stri- strip mining the country for you know twenty years, thirty years, with our trade agreements, and and we were gutting the middle of the country, and that there was a bunch of middle class, lower middle class, blue collar workers that were just basically being told to figure something else out as all these jobs were being moved overseas, and and I felt that you know I don't want to be overly I don't know what the word is overly sentimental about it, but I was thinking about. You know the kind of legacy I wanted to leave to my daughter, and and what I wanted her to think about me, and I just knew at a certain point I was like, I, I believe in this. I think it's a company I'd be really proud of. We could have some good, and I want her to think of me that way, and I want to run a business that I'm proud of, and so it came out of that idea, and and the original concept was we're going to make great clothing in the U.S., and that was it. It was like that's what we're going to do. We're going to sell it direct to consumers. That's the framework, and and then I started thinking what we would sell. And I wanted to do something iconic and on that list was like blue jeans or flannel or a t-shirt or a sweatshirt and blue jeans and flannel are hard as hell and t-shirts are not that impactful. And so we kind of said the sweatshirt's the thing. So that's how we got around to it. And then I dragged sleep into health <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, off we went.
2: That origin story where you know, you're know you experiencing the offshore, I kind of went through that myself with uh, another actually Stanford related company called Light and Motion, which was uh, vertically integrated. We did underwater video and photography equipment and also bike lights. And when I joined, it was like truly vertically integrated that the machine shop was down on the basement floor. And then we had sales and marketing and then engineering on the top. It was like a master's degree for me in like making stuff because we had, you know, I was down there on the machine shop floor and it was super fun. And like I learned a ton, but then there came a certain point where like they're having to commute with these other companies that are making stuff in China. And it just was just so hard. But I'm wondering for you and for American Giant, how do you tell that story to your customer?
0: How do you talk about your vision in a way that like makes sense to people? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we kind of go back and forth a little bit. Uh, there's a side of me that is almost like, don't talk about it too much. Like just just walk the walk and let customers find out about it. And that that frankly was the original custom business. Was like when I started the company, we had no budget for marketing other than hiring a PR firm. I was like the only thing that I was going to spend on. I and mean, thinking there was like. Get customers to know what you're up to and who you are, and, and they'll talk to people, and then get the media to understand who you are, and they might write about you, and that's it. And that was the guiding principle of the company for the first four years, probably of the company's life. But so there's a big part of it is that Elijah, I think, you know, I think align around a set of values and a product that you believe in, and there's a side of me that feels like you got to let that customers ultimately are going to be the judge of that. And if you do that well, they're going to respond. If you do it terribly, they won't. So there's a piece of that. The other side though is. I do try to speak out a lot in situations like this. I think, I think the country is in the middle of a profound crisis about how we're thinking about what kind of country we want to be as we look down the road a bit. And I personally don't think that, you know, a country of of kind of a barbell kind of situation where you've got people that live in places like San Francisco and New York and have you know college and master's degrees and work in tech or legal or entertainment. And then the rest of the country that kind of is hanging on for dear life. I don't think that creates a stable middle class. And I, I think it doesn't create a you know good, viable jobs with integrity in small towns all across the country where it really matters. And so I think I try to talk about that. And I try to think more and more that we gotta just as a, as Americans think about where how we're spending our dollars. And, and I know that's a that's a big ask for people because you know, life considerations get in the way. But I do think that we have to reflect a little bit on the country today and how we're thinking about your point about how important is it to us that we live in communities that make things, that have independent businesses. And I think the US has really gotten to a place now where we've gone so far around the bend in pursuit of unfettered capitalism and trade that we've lost sight a little bit of the human fallout of that. And I think it's real. And I think that the closer you get to it, the more you look at it, I think the more important it becomes if you allow yourself the opportunity to just to process it a little bit. And the good news is I think we've got, you know, the last two administrations, the Biden administration and the Trump administration probably don't agree on anything. The one thing they do agree on is that we got to address our trade agreements and we got to rebalance them and we got to get, breathe some vitality back into US manufacturing, and domestic supply chains. And that's great news. And I think good things are going to come from that. But we need more of that. We need more machine shops. We need more apparel manufacturers. We need more independent farmers. We just need some of that vitality back into these towns. And you know, I think that's what gets our team up every day is that is that idea that with some small way, we can have an impact. We can add a job, we can add a, a good afternoon to some facility somewhere, and that means a lot to us. And I think we try to talk about that, that when you're supporting the company, you're supporting that initiative. And so that, that's the extent of how we do it. We don't, we don't do much more than that, but if I'm given a chance to talk to people like you guys, I, I jump at it because it's a good opportunity to tell a little bit more about what we're up to. There's
1: nothing like owning an object that gets better and better with use. I bought a pair of shoes back in 2006 and I've literally put thousands of miles on them. And I just sent them off. I bought them in Berlin. I sent them off to be resold so they can give me another, you know, 17 20 years. But that's one thing about, you know, like an American Giant sweatshirt. It doesn't feel like any other sweatshirt that I've ever owned, and I've owned a lot of sweatshirts. I mean, it feels it feels amazing it feels amazing to own, and it's so exciting when autumn comes around and I get to wear it again
0: that's really nice to hear you know it's like your shoes it's not that complicated you know I think you make something like that with great ingredients and you assemble it with talented people, the result's a good one I mean I have a similar experience with the one pair of dress shoes I bought for my job on Wall Street a million years ago that pair of shoes which i I spent I think back then like $210 for, which seemed to me at the time it is today, but back then was just like an impossibly large number. And they're the only dress shoes I have today. I still wear them when I always go to a wedding or a funeral. They're the ones I wear. And that's remarkable. I mean, that was 30 years ago and they're better today than they were then. I've had them resold sold twice. That's the aspiration with everything we do is that question is like, is this, we put our best foot forward here at every price point? We put our best foot forward. And I think that's and uh, you know, again, I think you achieve that. It's so much of the way that we design things now, and this is a real tribute to Philippe and the kind of cultural piece that he baked into the business is deconstruct everything and go bottom up. And by the way, have the humility to talk to the farmers that are farming your cotton and the yarn spinners that are spinning your yarn and the knitters and the finishers. Talk to them. Present the problem. We're trying to solve this. We want this to be the result. And it's remarkable what comes out of that. Just shut up for a minute and sit across from a guy that's been running a napping machine for, you know, twenty five years and ask him the problem. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny anecdote. We we sat once in a one of our yarn providers. We do business with one particular yarn provider that's out of Gastonia, North Carolina, and great people, great family business. And we sat in a conference room with them once, and I was there with a larger another large apparel retailer in the United States who was trying to have some insights into U.S. manufacturing. And the person from this yarn producer said. I gotta just stop for a second. That 25 years ago, I'd be talking to you all about how to produce better product and drive better costing, and we'd be solving things for a dollar a pound. But today, I have some junior salesperson talking to some junior salesperson on your side, and we're arguing over pennies a pound. They said I have a relationship with one business today where I actually have a partnership with them in that way, and it's American Giant. We're you know we're just a tiny player compared to these guys. But we've lost that a bit, that intimate relationship of building businesses together and collaborating working with one another. That's one of the, I think, the fallouts of a massive, complex, globalized supply chain. But it's interesting when you get into it with your constituents and you talk about the challenges you're trying to resolve, you get them together and you're talking to the people that are actually doing the work. It's interesting when you're able to achieve because of the talent's down there. It's like, oh yeah, right. These guys know more about yarn than I do. They've been doing it for three generations and at scale. <laughs> we should listen to them. So some of that quality is the result of just having the humility to realize like, there's a lot of knowledge there if you just tap into it that you can benefit from.
2: Could you talk a little bit about your design process and maybe how it's evolved over the years? You, you originally had this one product that you are really focused on, the sweatshirt, and then your product line grew. What changed about the design process as the company grew?
0: Yeah, I think this isn't always the case. I think this is, this is particularly the case in, in big categories of programs that we enter into. And in no particular order, it's like you know denim or flannel or, or women's leggings. Or when we enter into new categories where we feel like it's a new endeavor for us and maybe it's a new endeavor for our customers and we want to do it right. We want to do it with integrity and we want to... So I'll just give you sort of an example that'll sort of answer the question. We made a decision five years ago to launch a women's leggings program. And uh, we felt it was a good extension for the brand. The brand could do really, really well. It complemented very well our supply chain. The domestic supply chain is very well suited for leggings, but we didn't know a lot about leggings. And we knew the supply chain was there. We knew the yarn spinners were there. We knew the knitters were there. We knew that the sewers were there, but we didn't really know how to do it great. And so recruited <laughs> every woman we knew. <laughs> so I mean, not only everybody in our network, but our entire PR firm, which is an amazing PR firm, mostly women, we recruited a lot of the editors at Refinery29, which is an online fashion blog. And Connie Wang was the fashion editor there and started to bring them into the process that began with saying, tell us about the leggings you own and what you like about them and what you don't like about them. And if you talk to enough women, you find out pretty quickly that there's about nine things that really bother women about leggings. And it's, you know, it's things like grinning when a When fabric stretches at the knee, you can actually see the skin underneath. That's called grinning. It's visible moisture. So if you're sweating, you can see that. It's baconing around the knees where the fabric loosens over time, or it might be getting a muffin top on the waistline. And basically, I think it was eight, maybe nine things we were solving for. And so we literally condensed all that data, and then we went down to a place called Texalini in LA, which is like one of the best producers of this type of fabric in the world, in my opinion. And we sat in the development with them and said, here's, this is what we're solving for. And I'll never forget it. There, I think it was the head of production came to them and she was like, well, this isn't hard. We can do it. It's going to be expensive. And we were like, I, I don't, we don't care. We just want to solve the problems. And so what came out of that is our, our no BS program, which is just a, a line of women's legs. It's fantastic. It's just the fabric is absolutely beautiful. And it's just a result of sitting down and saying, talking to your customer and saying, what matters here? You know, what, would do you care about? And they're talking to and say, how do we resolve this? you know, that took a long time. There's a lot of iteration in that fabric and a lot of product testing. And, you know, similar thing with our premium t-shirt line, which is a slub fabric. Slub is a beautiful fabric. It's got a lot of problems. It twists. It can be transparent, a bunch of problems with it. How do you resolve that? And that one, you know, there are a lot of steps in that. But I think stepping away from it and saying, what what are we trying to achieve? And letting go of constraints. Don't constrain it based on cost. Don't constrain it based on whatever other factors might be. And then work with the supply chain and give them the room to work together with one another, like letting the knitters talk to the yarn spinners, letting the yarn spinners talk to the people that are finishing the cloth. Are you running into problems there? How can we deal with that? So, when we have big programs like that, that's how we do it. Obviously, we don't do that in every case. If we're doing like a basic t shirt, we know enough now how to do that pretty well. And it's not quite as exhaustive a process to go through. I think a lot of these companies out there are like, oh, we spent 10 years designing the t-shirts of t t-shirt made it's like oh, I don't know I mean t-shirts a shirts a t-shirt you can do some things to make it better but you probably can't you know recreate the mousetrap on that one so I think it's one part of that and I think it really is this immersive relationship with the supply chain that's super super important that we have the luxury of yeah, you know, I spent a ton of time I was down in you know down in factories two days ago just talking to the men and women that are that are doing the work not just at the sewing end but all the way through and that that's a huge part of our process it's just letting that knowledge base come through and impact what we end up producing
1: How do you think about communicating values? I mean, clearly you've got a point of view and you went into the creation of this business with with a strong point of view and values that guided you. But one of the challenges of growing a business is those values have to be communicated to other people. The hiring process, like how do you find people who are likely to kind of buy into the vision and the purpose of the business? How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. I'm not sure how well we do it. You know, I'm too reflecting on hiring. I think one of the things we've probably under indexed for is when we hire team members over the years. We haven't always been. I think this is not the case now. I think the team we have on board now is just like they're on the mission now. But I think being more overt about that, you know, this is what we're trying to do. During the pandemic, over the last four years, let's say, there have been so many things that have presented brands with challenges, whether it's you know, the BLM protests or COVID-19 or school shootings or global warming or whatever these big things might be. And Brands are under tremendous pressure to respond to all of those and to take stands on all of those. And I think going through those experiences, our response has always been, I think, to really be both sensitive to where our customers are, where our employees are, but to be clear about the mission that we are on. And we are not on a mission on all those things. We are trying to impact U.S. communities that need good jobs. We are laser focused on that. And I think we have at times been really clear about that in our recruiting process and other times been less clear on it. And I think some of the times we've been in our advertising, we've been more focused on just trying to convert customers because you know it felt like, oh, we're you're getting hammered by COVID or whatever it might be. We got to be more. And I think almost every case when we're not clear about what we're doing and why we're here. It's not good. I'm not sure that we do it particularly well. I think we try to do it well. I think, you know, when we're at our best, we're clear about that. And we're it's in our our advertising materials and it's in these discussions and it's in recruiting new members to the team and onboarding new supply chain facilities. And and then the other thing I would say is that, you know, I sort of reflect on this a lot. It took me to be into my fifties before I realized like I want to work with people that I admire and respect and like. The flip side of that is we try to build really durable, long, long-term relationships with the people we partner with, and and that has been a, one of the great beneficiaries of this company is is having some those relationships really throughout our supply chain. And you know, it so happened that during COVID, that was probably saved the company. That we had these deep relationships with suppliers in Gaffey, South Carolina, who were willing to reach across to us and help us when we needed help and needed to help managing inventory when the bottom fell out of the market and stuff like that. So. I think just trying to be more, in our case, values forward and, and transparent and forthright about what we believe in and why.
2: Yeah, like that idea of focusing on your your mission is really interesting. And and maybe rewinding a little bit to talk about the COVID experience, you found yourself in a situation where your your values and what the company cares about aligned with sort of a almost a task you were assigned to make PPE. And maybe talk about you know what went through that. How did and how did that kind of like you know, feed into you know, the values your company has.
0: There's not a huge number of companies that are produced in the US and textile world um, anymore. And those that are there, at least those that are significant enough, can know all know one another. There's a, a very important yarn producer. They're the largest consumer of cotton in the United States called Parkdale. And the man that runs that, Anderson Warlick, is a great man, great friend of the company, was a friend of ours way before he should have been. You know, we were just tiny and he really. Has been a consistent steady friend through all of it and, and his team around and Charles Heilig and Davis and all these guys that are just kind of been really great to us. But Anderson got a phone call from the White House when the pandemic had kind of just started going and they got a call saying we need we need masks. And it's, it's easy to forget this back then. But there was a time there where in New York they couldn't get medical masks on the physicians and nurses and ambulance drivers. It was a crazy situation. And so Anderson who is you know, very connected to The industry and a lot of the big producers, like Haynes and Fruita Loom and people like that, he basically sent out a call to, I think, seven of us to say, "Look, we got to get going on this." And uh, obviously, you get a phone call like that, and you know, it's an easy thing to say yes to, you know. And so we did, and and it was a remarkable thing. I mean, I you know, we people that on the face of it might be competitive with one another. I mean, the Haynes people were just absolutely phenomenal. I mean. They spent hours on the phone with our engineers and you know, we had the US government using planes to fly fabric in and it was remarkable. And I think within ten days, we were producing thousands of masks a day. And as were, you know, a bunch of these companies, Sandmar and Haynes and others. And we were, you know, I think we ended up doing I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of millions of masks we did, but it was it was good to be a part of that. And it got frustrating at times. I mean, I remember there was a point where we had pallets and pallets and masks sitting in our loading dock in North Carolina and the U.S. Postal Service was refusing to pick it up because the registration of the U.S. Postal Eagle wasn't correct enough. And I I mean, I remember I was on a conference call once with, I think it was Peter Navarro's office in the White House and Andy Warlick and all these guys. And I was just like, I'm going to drive the fucking truck up myself. I'm going to drop it off. This is insane. And the next day I got picked up. But, but just stuff like that, you're dealing with the federal government can at times be just maddening. Like, guys, there's, you know, What are we doing here? And I think you know it it was obviously we would do it again in a heartbeat. It was a reminder, though, back to the earlier conversation that it is not a great thing that as a country we had to ask a company that makes sweatshirts and t-shirts to convert its facility to make medical masks. I mean, I, I think we've lost that ability, you know, and I think we need to have some of that capability back domestically, even if it doesn't make the most economic sense in the world. We've got to have some capability to to make the things that we need. I wrote a piece about this on LinkedIn in the middle of it all, but I had an experience where my daughter got sick right when the pandemic was getting started. I walked out of Walgreens and they were sold out of, of Motrin. And for those of you that have kids, it's like Motrin. Like, it's like literally like, it is like manna from heaven. It's the most remarkable thing. There's no motion on the, I on holy like, oh, shit, there's no Motrin here. I went home and got on my computer. And it was like, turns out that basically all the motion comes out of China, as is all the penicillin. And it just got me late at night in a bit of a fevered state into a place where I finally like need needed to write something about that. Like, we got to, Confront this stuff. Like we gotta, we gotta have the ability to make stuff. And so it was a great experience. We got through it. We had to shut down all of our production for I don't know six months. That was a little breathtaking, but we filled the contract up and then moved on. And it was uh, again glad to be a part of it. But I would prefer if the next time around we've got that capability domestically, independent of the Haynes and the American Giants of the world, because it's a uh, not our core business. Obviously,
1: that's fascinating. Well, thank you for doing that because you know, those of us that were here, probably most listeners remember that very well. It was a scary time.
0: It was a scary time. Yeah, I remember we, uh, I know the fire chief here in San Francisco and uh, she's a remarkable woman. There was a point there where I was driving boxes in my pickup truck of masks to her fire department. So her officers, her fire men and women could have masks. It was just like it was wild. I mean, it was just—it's hard. It, It's—I almost—it's almost hard to remember that now. You know, it feels so long ago and and so unreal. But yeah, it was—it's was a crazy time. Well, Bayard, this has been fascinating.
1: What you're doing at American Giant is super inspiring. The design process you go through, the way you pay attention to quality and sourcing, how it all fits together—it's a really inspiring business.
0: Well, I appreciate that. It's been the. Joy of my life to be able to do it, and so I feel very grateful to be have been a part of it. And it's a great job to get up and go to every day. I feel very, very lucky. So I appreciate the kind words. It's been a blast.
1: Before we close out, what are you reading, watching, listening to that is exciting or inspiring to you? Uh,
0: so I do a thing at the office where I buy books for. Was, I was inspired by Zappos and Tony Shea that did a similar thing for this year. Zappos, he had this thing. We had in the bookshelf used to take books. And I was like, that's a great idea. And it's a great way to sort of socialize thinking um, with the team. So I'll give you a couple that I've read recently that are on my my bookshelf, some different ones. One of them is a a book called Two Second Lean that is a, a book about lean principles in manufactured businesses that addresses, I think, books like The Toyota Way don't quite, I think, get down to the cultural level. Like how do you imbue a facility in North Carolina with lean principles? And so that book, which is written by ben Paul Akers is fantastic and and helped our team socialize the idea of lean thinking and everything that we're doing and trying to get better and better and better about that in our offices, in our facilities, in our supply chain. Uh, that's one that I think is really accessible, easy to read. On the face of it, might feel a little simplistic, but I would push back on that and say it's a good reminder for those people that are not trained in lean principles to read and a way to socialize that. That's one. Another is we are just moving offices now, and we're moving to another part of the city. And, and our new neighbor now is Tartine, the bread maker, and Chad Robertson, is a, who's a this guy we've known for a long time. That's a great neighbor to have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've known Chad for a long time. And for those of you that don't know him, he is a talk about quality and commitment to craft and totally immersed in it. He is that in spades. And uh, his first cookbook, uh, I like think it's called Tartine, is one that I've I just bought three more copies yesterday for members of my team, but we've got an interesting project coming up with him. And I just reread that book. And it just, it's a reminder of just the joy and the output that comes from true commitment and passion about something. And in his case, through the lens of really just a single bread that he makes. But uh, it's a to- I find it a totally inspiring marination on that idea and the importance of design and commitment into manufacturing in a way that produces something pretty remarkable on the other side. Awesome. So
2: before we started recording, Aaron was on mute, and we were kind of laughing, and he, Aaron has this great t-shirt idea, actually, This have a shirt that just says, you're on mute. So <laughs> we, I mean, we're really, really loving this partnership with American <laughs> Giants so far. Like Aaron, I have a sweatshirt, and unlike Aaron, I'm able to wear it right now because we have this coastal fog in the morning, yep. so I'm often, I'm often wearing it to go check the surf but um, we need to make that t-shirt. We should make t t-shirt. So you heard it here first.
0: (laughs) We need to make that t-shirt. That's the best.
2: I'm from the design better podcast. So we'll, we'll, we'll we'll count count
0: us in. We will, we will produce that t-shirt with you guys. That's awesome. I love that. Awesome. I'll wear that that on my kids when they're, uh, when they're, (laughs) when they're getting under my skin, you are on mute officially. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's great. I'm in. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> awesome. Well, well, Bayard, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you both very much. It was great talking to you. Yeah,
1: you know, I, I love talking to Bayard. I mean, he's just such a genuine person. And his values, they come through in his business, they come through in the actions, the way that he treats his employees, very focused on building things here in the United States. Recognize we have listeners around the world, but you know the United States kind of lost a lot of manufacturing and with that, a lot of jobs. And as Bayard shared, that impacted a lot of smaller towns. I grew up in a small town and factories are the lifeblood of these small towns. And when a business leaves, people like families break up, you know, people, um, are left destitute, so that was something that really resonated with me, how American Giant runs their business and the values that are behind their products.
2: Yeah, me too. Uh, I spent the first part of my career doing physical product design, and it was a brand that was vertically integrated, so we built everything in-house, most of it in the building that we worked in, at least in the beginning, and I got a real sense for how those kind of jobs, whether that's on the manufacturing floor or assembly line, they're really meaningful for people, not only because they were typically higher wage than a lot of the jobs you could get in the area, or the area of Monterey is largely kind of tourist driven. So often lower wage jobs and restaurants and things like that, but also just, you know, making things day to day. There's something about working with your hands and it's not for everybody, but some people it really resonates with, it's meaningful. You come out at the end of the day feeling like you've accomplished
1: something. You brought up one of my favorite books, The Byard Zen on the Art of uh, Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a book I read a long time ago. I think I was an undergrad and it wasn't an easy read all the time, but the concepts of that book stuck with me. The basic premise is that quality is important and knowing how to take care of things is really important. And when I buy stuff, I think about that book. You know, I think about those principles a lot because we buy a lot of disposable stuff. You know, fast fashion, it's a and m H&M. you know, you, you go there and you get a cheap thing and it falls apart. And don't get me wrong, I do like H&M, but just, it, you know, stuff doesn't last. But then you buy something from a manufacturer like an American Giant and you have a piece of clothing that lasts a long time. That philosophy, you know, as designers, we think about that thing. We think about how things are made and, you know, the ethics that go into that.
2: Yeah, there's a line from the book that says, caring about what you're doing is considered either unimportant or taken for granted. And I do think we've gotten to a place where, you know, it's sort of taken for granted that, that you may be, and I, I'm speaking for myself here, but maybe working on a project where you just kind of get distanced from the fact that this thing that you're shipping out to the world is gonna be used by people. And, and sometimes you just get so wrapped up in like the day-to-day you know, whatever bureaucracy of the place you're working, that those sort of challenges become more central than the actual act of creating
1: something and getting it out to the world. So you mentioned at the top of the show that this was kind of new for us having a sponsored episode in our feed. And it's not something that we take lightly. In fact, initially, we, we sort of were like, you know, this is a line in the sand for us because we always want to produce episodes that are relevant to people, you know, to our listeners, because you're taking time to listen to our show and that means something to us. That's really important. But American Giant is a company that we think has lessons. Like we can learn from a company like this. It's an adjacency. It's not software. It's physical goods. There's a ton that we can learn from industrial design. You know, they've been doing this for hundreds of years, not American Giant, but industrial designers have been doing these things for a long time. They're working with design systems. They're working with, you know, constraints, time constraints, thinking about operations and staffing. And it's a lot of the same stuff that software and, and design teams are wrestling with right now. We talked a bit about the values of American Giant. Those values line up with us. And we've had a chance to wear American Giant clothing. And, you know, speaking for myself, I love what they make. They make the best sweatshirt, just hands down whether it's a hoodie or just like a classic crew, I love it. And we're recording and it's early October. This is my favorite time of year. And I love it when I can break out like the cooler weather clothing because cooler weather clothing is the best. It's so good to put on like a nice sweatshirt. And it just doesn't get any better than a sweatshirt from American Giant.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm actually wearing one of their pieces right now, somewhat unintentionally, the CFC shirt and... First of all, I left the house with more than one item of clothing that had camouflage on it. Also <laughs> un- unintentionally, so I kind of look like a deer hunter, <laughs> uh, embarrassing to my wife. But <laughs> but this shirt is just it's wonderful. It's it's heavy. It's so well made. It's warm, and you know whether I'm just you know chasing the kids around at a park or I'm out looking at the surf and it's a cold morning. These clothes are just, just they're fantastic.
1: You know, sometimes being a designer, like it can be painful because we pay attention to all the details. You check into a hotel room and the faucet doesn't work right. The light switch is in the wrong place. They don't have space in the closet for your luggage. That stuff just like, I'm haunted by it. I can't stop seeing that stuff. And so when I go buy something that I'm going to bring into my life, into my house. I'm going to wear it. I'm going to be, you know, it's like part of my brand, my personal brand, how I'm seen in the world. I pay attention to stuff. Like, is it good? Is it going to last a long time? Does it feel good? I really pay attention to like textures and so forth. And, you know, I pay attention to the story. Where's this thing come from? What's this brand about? And all of those things that, you know, line up with American Giant. They pay attention to quality. As much as I do, you know, how things are made, the stitching and so forth. I just appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we'll only bring you this kind of episode if it aligns up on several fronts. One is that, you know, the products we love, which clearly these are, these are great products. Two is the values of their brand align with ours. I mean, in addition to creating local jobs, they're also very focused on sustainability. They use, you know, cotton that's sustainable. So that aligns with the way we think. Then, then when we want it to be an interesting story and educational and aligned with our, you know, what our audience wants to learn. And like Aaron said, I think this kind of ticks all those boxes. So hopefully you you liked it, you enjoyed it. And please let us know and feedback if this is something you want to hear more of because we're hoping to be able to do more. But again, our most important thing for us is that we're making a show that you guys love.
1: And if you do have feedback, contact at the Curiosity That's how you can reach both me and Eli. It is important for us to have sponsored episodes, as Eli said, when the content matches up with, you know, the quality that we want to bring you. And there's a lesson. Like it's not just, hey, here's a thing to buy, but there's something we can learn from here and bring into our work. When that aligns, we'll do that. But it also helps support our show and make this sustainable. We want to keep you know, bringing you content that is useful and educational and helps you with your career and your curiosities. You can save 20% off your first purchase from American Giant. Just go to dbtr.co slash American Giant and enter the code Better at checkout for 20% off. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.